Well, as noted in the announcements this morning, our Sunday evening adult class is reading through Living Spiritually in the Material World. It's a book that highlights what the founders and early presidents of America's colleges thought important to share with their students. Our last two classes were spent discussing the importance of daily encounters. According to the author of our book, the presidents said there is no such thing as an accidental meeting with another soul. For every human encounter, no matter how unplanned or temporary it might appear, occurs for a reason. He quoted a president who often reminded her students that God makes his wishes known not only in the privacy of the intuitive mind, something we explored in an earlier chapter, but through the agency of man. The people who appear in our lives at each moment are, as she put it, pre-positioned for our spiritual development just as we have a role to play in theirs. The author went on to say, it is not an exaggeration to say the early college presidents regarded all their interactions as no less than divinely arranged appointments, never to be taken for granted or regarded as inconsequential, but honored as a possible context for something grander than circumstances suggest. Now, the class questioned the presumption that every encounter was actually ordained by God, but we did agree that the mere fact of regarding all encounters as divinely arranged elevates the overall quality of life, making every hour, every place, every event more special than it would otherwise appear. Well, that was certainly true of an encounter that took place at a well in Samaria when Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee. We pick up the account in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. When, therefore, the Lord knew that the Pharisees has heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, as we discovered last week, John the Baptist's disciples were getting jealous over the fact that Jesus' disciples were baptizing more Jews than they were. Today we discover that the Pharisees were also noticing Jesus' success and were trying to use it to stir up even more trouble between John and Jesus. 
To avoid further conflict between his disciples and the disciples of John, Jesus decided to leave the area. Now, sometimes the best approach to conflict resolution is to simply avoid it. Besides, it really didn't matter to Jesus who was baptizing the Jews that were responding to a call for repentance. In fact, John notes that Jesus made a point of not baptizing anyone himself. Now, that is not an indication that Jesus didn't think baptism was important. He simply didn't baptize anyone personally because they would no doubt place undue importance on who baptized them. You know, Paul was conscious of the same thing when he wrote to the Corinthians, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that no man should say you were baptized in my name. Can you imagine how someone would have felt if they had been personally baptized by Jesus? It would have no doubt overshadowed the real purpose for their baptism. Anyway, to avoid the conflict, Jesus decided to leave Judea for the time being and go back home to Galilee. And John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, it is true that Samaria was located between Judea and Galilee. But most Jews avoided traveling through Samaria by crossing the Jordan River and traveling through Perea and Decapolis to the east of Samaria. And if Jesus' disciples had been baptizing in the Jordan, even if they'd been in a hurry, they wouldn't have had to go out of their way to avoid Samaria. But Jesus may have felt compelled to go through Samaria, perhaps to make a statement, perhaps because he knew he had a divine appointment there. For whatever reason, He did go through Samaria, and he stopped to rest at Jacob's well outside the city of Sychar. Now, John notes that it was about the sixth hour when Jesus stopped at the well. We generally assume that to be noon, the sixth hour from sunrise, the sixth hour according to Jewish reckoning of time. But as we noted in the first chapter, And we'll see again in John's record of events on the day of Jesus' crucifixion, it appears that John calculated time as did the Romans. And if that's true, it was 6 p.m. when Jesus stopped to rest at Jacob's well. John notes that he was weary from a day of traveling when he encountered a woman from Samaria And then John shares with us the longest recorded interview of Jesus with any individual. The interview begins with Jesus simply saying, give me a drink. John chapter 4, 7 through 14. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. 
Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The disciples had gone into the city to buy food, leaving Jesus alone when a woman came to draw water. Jesus was thirsty, and he had no way to draw from the well, so he simply asked the woman for a drink. A modern traveler recorded a similar incident that he witnessed while sitting beside a well in Palestine. He writes, an Arab woman came down from the hills above to draw water. She unfolded and opened her goatskin bottle and then untwined a cord and attached it to a very small leathern bucket which she carried, by means of which she slowly filled her skin, fastened its mouth, placed it on her shoulder, and, bucket in hand, climbed the mountain. I thought of the woman of Samaria at Jacob's well when an Arab footman, toiling up the steep path from Jericho, heated and wearied with his journey, turned aside to the well, knelt and peered wistfully down. But he had nothing to draw with, and the well was deep. He lapped a little moisture from the water spilt by the woman who had preceded him, and disappointed, passed on. Well, Jesus was already there when the woman arrived. So he asked her for a drink. She was shocked that he would do so, that Jesus would even speak to a Samaritan woman. You know, it was unusual for a man to speak to any woman in public. Most men wouldn't even speak to their wives in public. And it was very unusual for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan. You know, Jews and Samaritans pretty much hated each other. And as we're reminded by ethnic conflicts around the world, it's not only the Hatfields and McCoys who hold grudges for years. The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans had existed for generations. When the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon some 500 years earlier, they refused to let Jews from Samaria, who had been left behind and had intermarried with the transplanted foreigners, help rebuild the temple. And when John notes that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, he actually says Jews have no use with Samaritans. That is probably a reference to the fact that they wouldn't drink from the same cup, reminding us of the water fountains that were labeled whites only or colored during Jim Crow. Be that as it may, when Jesus asked for a drink, he shocked the woman. 
And then he went on to turn this casual encounter into an opportunity for witness. You know, he was always ready for such moments and even consciously created them. Something we would do well to emulate, whether we believe God orchestrated the moment or not. So he said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He was the gift of God. And as such, he was the source of living water. All she had to do was ask. And it would have been hers for the taking. But she missed the spiritual implications of what he was saying. Living water was to her simply moving water. Water from a spring or a stream. Jesus had no way to draw from Jacob's well, and she knew there were no streams in the area. If there had been, Jacob wouldn't have dug the hundred-foot-deep well to find water. So she chided him for being unable to provide this living water. If Jacob couldn't find it, surely he couldn't. He didn't think he was greater than Father Jacob, did he? Rather than be offended by our response, Jesus went on to explain the true nature of the water he was offering. He said, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He was talking about water that would quench the kind of thirst David spoke about in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He was talking about the water offered in Revelation 21. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He was, in effect, offering to her eternal life, but she missed it completely. Her response led Jesus to say, go call your husband. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Her life centered on the physical. So she didn't catch the drift of Jesus' comments. Even the mention of eternal life didn't faze her. The idea of never being thirsty did appeal to her. She would take this living water if it meant she would never have to haul water again. Obviously, she was blind to her spiritual need. So Jesus said, go call your husband. Now, 
He did not say that in the hopes that her husband could explain things to her. He said it to expose her need by confronting her with sin in her life. She had been married five times. We don't know the circumstances that led to five marriages. She may have been widowed five times or divorced by five different husbands. Either way, it would appear that something was wrong. Maybe she had killed them off or run them off. Whatever the circumstances, her track record should have told her something about her spiritual need. And to make things even worse, the man she was currently living with was not her husband. She wasn't married to number six. She was embarrassed that Jesus knew about this. She was embarrassed about her past, and she was embarrassed about a current relationship that was not right. She knew what she was doing was wrong, but tried to ignore it. She was like so many couples today who try to ignore the moral implications of their living arrangement. It's true that our society no longer condemns couples living together outside of wedlock. In fact, it's become the norm. However, couples who then decide to get married do often acknowledge that they knew their living arrangement wasn't right. They knew grandma wouldn't approve. But living together outside of marriage isn't just something that's not right in the eyes of some people. It's sinful in the eyes of God. Hebrews 13.4 makes that clear. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God will will judge those who are sexually immoral. Now, they can be forgiven, but unrepentant sin condemns. And this woman had to be confronted with the fact that her behavior was condemning her. She was definitely in need of the cleansing that would come from the living water Jesus was offering. But she tried to ignore her spiritual need. So Jesus forced her to think about spiritual things by reminding her that God is spirit. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. 
God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, since she could tell that Jesus was a prophet, she may have had some interest in his opinion about where men should worship. But I think she was really just trying to avoid dealing with her sin by getting into a theological discussion. You know, that's a very common move to make. When spiritual discussions get too personal, too uncomfortable, too confrontational. The Samaritans had had a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. It was gone by then, but they still worshipped there. So she tried to use a controversial topic to get Jesus off an uncomfortable topic, her life. But Jesus knew what was going on. And rather than be drawn into an argument that had raged for generations, he simply stated that the place where one worships is not important. Since God is spirit, worship is spiritual in nature. It's not limited to a physical place or physical rituals. Now, those things may facilitate worship, and they're not wrong, but they are not the essence of worship. In fact, you can be in a house of worship and go through the motions of worship and not be worshiping. No matter how religious what you're doing might appear to be or how worshipful the setting, if what you're saying and doing are not honest expressions of reverence and surrender, it's not worship. Just talking or singing about spiritual things is not worship. She thought she could feign spirituality and ignore her need by bringing up a spiritual issue. But Jesus wouldn't let her ignore her need. He then tried, or she then tried, to dismiss it all by saying she knew Messiah would come someday and he'd settle everything when he got there. Jesus responded by making it clear that he was the Messiah. And this, by the way, is the only place outside of the direct questioning of Pilate where Jesus openly stated that he was the Messiah, the Christ. He wanted her to recognize her need and to recognize that he was the only one who could meet her need. So he made it very clear that he was the Christ. As such, he was worthy of her worship. And he's worthy of our worship as well. He alone is the source of living water. He alone can wash away sin. He alone can keep us alive and clean for all 
eternity. She had a hard time recognizing that fact. I trust that we can see it. May our eyes be opened to our need for living water.